Sentire Media. Hello, you. You're listening to A History of Italy. Crossover episode The Bagpipes of Resistance. The following episode is a real special treat. For me, at least. In the sense that I recorded a crossover episode with David Crowther of the History of England podcast, one of my bestest, bestest heroic podcasters. It was a real pleasure, like somebody playing a few strings on the guitar and then being invited to play with the Rolling Stones. Of course, I had to look for something that was a cross between British and Italian history, and I chose a very interesting story of a British SAS and Italian partisan attack on a German command centre towards the end of World War II in our local territory. However, before we go there, a quick word from our sponsor. Today's episode is about bagpipes, so who better to present this episode than DB, who produces lovely backpacks and bags, but not bagpipes. DB is a Scandinavian brand that makes backpacks and bags to help people on the move stay ready for anything. Even a medieval siege, if you will. From the streets to the peaks, DB's gear is travel-tested by some of the world's best athletes, adventurers and creators. Over the past decades, DB has designed and developed released and refined the best bags on the market. With DB's patented hookup system, you are able to attach smaller products to your backpack, roller or tote. Everybody knows how important it is to have exactly the right gear when you're traveling and not to forget that one little item that you left up in the hotel room or back at the train station. We are teaming up with DB to exclusively offer our listeners 10% off your next purchase by using the code POD10, that's P-O-D-1-0, or going to the link in our show notes. DB, it's time to move on. Time to get going. There are many moments in which the histories of Britain and Italy cross paths. If you want to see Italian history as a continuation of Roman history, you could go all the way back to Caesar with his little holiday, and then Caligula with his brave assault on a load of rather dangerous seashells. You can bet some of them may have been very sharp. Or you could move up to the first English Pope, Hadrian IV, or the visit of King Richard the Lionheart to Sicily, where, apparently, he gave King Arthur's legendary sword Excalibur to the Sicilian King Manfredi. Not sure if that's actually true. 
We could go to the relationship between the Florentine bankers and the English kings, or moving closer to modern history when Giuseppe Garibaldi made his tour of England, provoking a rock star like Beatles mania a hundred years before the Beatles actually came along. However, we who are alive today may have had the good fortune of having real-life testimonies of when Italian and British history crossed as the British, Americans and many others made their way up the Italian peninsula during the Second World War. I myself, as an Anglo-Italian, for a time had a grandfather on each side of the conflict, with the risk of one shooting, or in the case of my English grandfather bombing, the other and making me non-existent. But in the end, my Italian grandfather got captured by the Allies and ended up being a driver for an American colonel, and the English one, a desert rat in the 8th Army, made it all the way through the campaign to get home and conceive my mother. It is to the Second World War that we turn our attention, and to a rather unlikely British hero who may have saved the lives of many Italian citizens, perhaps hundreds. So, let me now take you to northern Italy in early 1945. Since the winter of 1943, the Italians had been struggling under the yoke of Nazi occupation, supported by Mussolini's puppet regime. As the Allies advanced and the resistance fighters wreaked havoc behind enemy lines, there was hope that the war could be coming to an end. But also, great fear, with some of the greatest Nazi and fascist atrocities being perpetrated in these last years. Colonel Roy Alexander Farron sat in the headquarters in the little Apennine mountain village of Secchio, not far from the border between Emilia and Tuscany. Operation Tombola, bingo, was almost ready. Farron, a member of the 3rd Squadron 2nd Regiment of the newly formed elite British SAS, Special Air Service, was already a legend by that time, with a price on his head set by the Nazis of 100,000 marks. He had not been in Seculong and actually should not have been there at all. He had received orders to stay at the Allied Command headquarters in Florence, but while accompanying a launch of paratroopers over the Apennines and behind enemy lines, he had accidentally fallen out of the plane. Luckily for the colonel, he had accidentally fallen in full combat gear and wearing a parachute. In short, after a daring escape from a prison camp on the island of Crete early on in the war with a wounded leg, he was not now going to sit back from a distance while his boys put their lives on the line to help speed up the end of the war. He had arrived in the mountains on Sunday the 4th of March 1945 with his accidental fall with other members of the SAS and two Spanish Republican fighters who wished to support the Allied war effort. On the ground at the landing site to receive them, as well as the Garibaldini and Fiamme Verdi resistance fighters, 
was Captain Michael Lees of the SOE Special Forces. Once they had got the news back in Allied command in Florence that Farron had fallen out of the plane, but then received the news that he was okay, there was probably a lot of eye-rolling, and that was that. They knew that Farron had never been the most disciplined when it came to following orders. The time between Farron's arrival on the 4th of March and the start of Operation Tombola at the end of the month had been used to support local partisans and sabotage operations, such as the bombing of a munitions train down in the valley, attacks on German and fascist patrols, and mostly collecting information. A vital element in the collection of information, as well as exchanging messages, were the so-called staffette, the messengers, you could say. These were incredibly brave young women who were used due to their in-depth knowledge of the local terrain, allowing them to avoid being noticed by German and fascist patrols, and the fact that a young woman running an errand drew less suspicion. These young girls, many of them little more than teenagers, risked their lives every day and were often used as bait to lure enemy soldiers into traps, in which the partisans would then capture them or assassinate them. The spy master of this network of staffette was a man by the name of Giulio Davoli, whose battle name was Kiss. Most partisans would take on a battle name, especially because many of them were wanted by the fascist authorities, and these were often in English. The name of Kiss had actually been a mistaken pronunciation. He had wanted, for some strange reason, perhaps because he loved cheese, to be called Cheese, but hadn't quite managed to make himself understood with the British, so kiss it was. It is thanks to one of the captured prisoners that the Allies and the Partisans got the information they needed to organise Operation Tombola. Thanks in particular to a captured radio operator who very willingly gave up all the information he knew, they confirmed that the German forces in the area, the advanced command of the 51st Gebirgskorps, had their 5th section of the General Command Centre for the western side of the Gothic Line in two villas, Villa Calvi and Villa Rossi, in a small village called Botteghe, at the foothills of the Reggio Emilia Apennines. This was the brain of an important section of the Gothic Line, the line that at the time divided the advancing allies from the German occupiers and the fascists. Many top-ranking Nazi and fascist officials had been seen at the location. One of these was Eugene Dolman, Hitler's interpreter in Italy and one of the architects behind the liberation of Mussolini from his Gran Sasso prison. The commanding officer of the position was Valentin Feuerstein. Fascist General Graziani, and even Field Marshal Kesselring himself had been spotted at the villas. The Allies and partisans, again thanks to the captured radio operator, discovered that in particular in Villa Rossi there were up to around 30 high-ranking Nazi officers at any time, while in Villa Calvi they had positioned the map rooms and radio equipment. The doors of the two buildings were constantly guarded and there were machine gun nests on the roofs. 
As the days and weeks went by, more SAS men were parachuted in, as well as supplies. On the 18th of March, some news arrived which alarmed Colonel Farron, indicating that they would need to act soon. It seemed that Mussolini had signed the order to perform sweeps of all the Apennine area in search of partisans and enemy forces behind the lines. Inevitably, these sweeps would often lead to civilians being involved and killed. To this day, these lands still remember Nazi and fascist atrocities of the time, such as the massacre of Montesole and that of Cervarolo, just to name a couple. It was exactly due to the danger posed to the local population that, although Operation Tombola was practically ready, there was one more important element missing. You see, ever since the Ardeatina massacre of the 24th of March 1944, the German forces in Italy had increasingly applied Hitler's chilling order of killing 10 partisans, prisoners of war or civilians for every fascist or Nazi killed. The Allies and partisans knew that they needed to make an attack on the command centre at the two villas in the town of Bottega. However, they didn't want the Germans to think that the attack had come from the partisans, something which would have inevitably provoked a reprisal, putting the lives of possibly hundreds of civilians in danger. That is where a Scotsman, David Kirkpatrick, comes into our story. He was a soldier of the 2nd Highland Light Infantry Regiment. He was from the town of Girvan in southwestern Scotland and was only 21 years old at the time. You may be wondering at this point what his role in the operation would be and how his participation could avoid a reprisal by the German forces. Was he some sort of Scottish Rambo who could go in and single-handedly take out the whole German contingent? Was he some sort of Scottish James Bond, Sean Connery before his time, if you will, who could infiltrate the command centre, destroying everything and at the same time spreading false information? The inhabitants of the small village of Kazebalocki, near the Allied drop site, would soon discover what his specialty was. In the early morning hours of the 24th of March, they heard a rumbling in the sky. They were not alarmed. By this time, they knew it was an Allied plane making another drop, and many of the children went out, curious to see what kind of foreign creature would arrive this time, after all the British, Russians, Spanish, Greek, and so on. The Douglas C-47 Skytrain made its way over their position, and a small human figure jumped out. They waited for a while for the figure to come into better view. At a certain point, someone on the ground exclaimed, It's a woman! They've parachuted a woman! A little while later, someone else corrected him. That's not a woman. That's a man wearing a skirt. Indeed, Kirkpatrick, braving the cold rush of spring mountain air as he parachuted to the ground, had worn the traditional kilt. Along with the Scotsman, the plane had also dropped supplies. One of the crates held Kirkpatrick's secret weapon. He went over and opened the crate, and then pulled out his bagpipes. Like the Pied Piper of Hamelin, he began to play immediately, 
and the children followed him into the village. He was accompanied to the house of a resistance collaborator where he could spend the night. The daughter of the man was a young woman who was to be married in the coming months. As soon as they saw the soldier's silk parachute, they eyed it longingly, and although Kirkpatrick did not speak Italian and they did not speak English, they managed to understand each other. Some time later, the daughter would get married with a beautiful wedding dress made from the parachute of a young soldier of the 2nd Highland Light Infantry Regiment. The last piece of the puzzle for Operation Tombola was in place. The Scotsman joined the team of 100 Italians, Englishmen, Greeks, Russians, Spaniards, Canadians, Poles, Scotsmen, as well as defecting Germans and Austrians. They would make their way down out of the mountains and take position around the two villas. Kirkpatrick's bagpipes would be the signal for attack. On the night of the 24th of March, a little party was held with dancing and music. A chance to say goodbye to boyfriends and girlfriends, comrades in arms and friends. Not everyone knew exactly what the mission would be, but they knew that it was dangerous and that many of them may not be coming back. The next day, the 25th of March, guided by the ever-present Staffette, they made their way down out of the mountains. Only when they were close to the target was the plan revealed to everyone. Part of the SAS forces, along with the Garibaldini partisans, would attack Villa Calvi, and destroy the map rooms and the telecommunications equipment. Another part of the SAS, along with the remaining partisans and various Allied soldiers from the different nationalities, would attack the officers and soldiers in Villa Rossi. The Russians would lay in wait, covering a possible retreat or awaiting the arrival of German reinforcements. The signal for Kirkpatrick to start playing his bagpipes would be the bazooka shot taking out the front door of Villa Calvi. When the young women of the Staffette heard the plan and discovered that they would not be playing a part in the initial attack, they were furious. One young woman in particular got so angry that she had to be restrained and taken out. Their job would be to scour the countryside after the attack, looking for the wounded and taking them to safety. If they found men they thought could not make it through the night, they were to finish them off. This was because Hitler had given orders that the members of the SAS, the partisans and the Russians were to be tortured and then killed. They spent the night of the 25th in the farm surrounding the area. They were worried that the German positions in the nearby hills would be able to spot any movement on the ground and they tried to keep very still all day. It would seem that, at first, fate favoured Operation Tombola because a heavy fog fell on the valley and the Germans could not see a thing of what was going on below them. On the night of the 26th of March, they moved into position and waited. The attack was to commence at 2 o'clock in the morning on the 27th. The German officers in Villarossi had had a little party that evening and had gone to bed late, 
after spending the evening singing and drinking the local Lambrusco wine. As the time for the attack neared, one of the SAS men prepared to take out the front door of the villa with a bazooka. It misfired. As he was trying to figure out what had happened, a German patrol could be heard approaching. The German patrol was made up of four men. The SAS, with silencers on their weapons, managed to take out three of them without making any noise. But the fourth managed to answer with a burst of machine gun fire, which alerted the other soldiers in the area, as well as waking up all those inside the villas. The surprise effect had been lost. Yells of, Partizana! could be heard as the defenders panicked and started to fire a wild hail of bullets into the night and out into the countryside. The attackers started their cover fire towards the upper windows of the houses. In the deathly concert of flying metal, suddenly a new sound could be heard. David Mad Piper Kirkpatrick had started playing his bagpipes. In the inferno of a night of war in Italy, the notes of Highland Laddie rang through the air. The guard towers were eliminated one by one. The SAS men entered Villa Calvi first, many of them seen with a grenade in one hand, a knife in the other, and their machine guns hanging from their necks. Their objective, to kill as many enemy soldiers as they could. Many soldiers in the buildings were caught still in their pyjamas or their underpants, desperately trying to get dressed and grab a hold of their weapons. Another group of SAS and partisans now managed to enter Villa Rossi, where the German officers were. Meanwhile, sirens and random anti-aircraft fire started up, illuminating the night as if it had suddenly become full daylight. It is at this point that German reinforcements came charging in. They were mowed down by the Russians lying in wait with their machine guns. Around this time, the sound of the bagpipes changed slightly. Indeed, Kirkpatrick's instrument had been pierced by a bullet which could just have easily had pierced the man himself. He tried to continue playing, but ended up having to seek refuge behind a tree. Meanwhile, in Villa Calvi, the map room and the radio equipment were completely destroyed. The first victim among the SAS men was killed as he tried to make his way to the upper floors of Villa Rossi. Emboldened by his first kill, the German soldier made his way down only to have his throat cut by another member of the special service. In the ensuing almost hand-to-hand -hand combat inside the building, two other British soldiers were killed and Captain Michael Lees, as well as the partisan commander nicknamed Gordon, were wounded. After half an hour of intense fighting, the mission had been a complete success. Colonel Farron fired a flare into the air to signal the retreat. Rather than head straight for the hills, and then the safety of the mountains, the commando headed instead towards the city, where the Germans would never expect them to go. They would then double back later and make their way back to the mountains where it was safe. As they were retreating, they narrowly missed another German patrol. They also happened upon phone wires which were essential to communications from the German command centres and cut them for good measure while they were at it. In the hours that followed the attack, the young women of the Staffette did their job 
and found the wounded men and took them to safety. The Germans were left confused and reeling from the attack. The vital command centre had been destroyed and was completely compromised. They would then move what they could salvage to a new centre further north in the town of Cavriago. The series of different languages heard during the attack had confused the defending Germans, but they were sure that some partisans had participated in the raid. Eugene Dolman was asked if there would be a reprisal against the prisoners of war and the local population. The decision was up to him. He told his men to be ready for anything. He had a lot to think about. He had been in Rome at the time of the Ardeatina massacre, in which, following an attack by partisans in Rome which had killed 33 German soldiers, 335 prisoners, partisans and civilians had been routinely massacred. The memory of the crime was fresh in his mind, as was the attitude of the Romans and Italians in general. He later declared that, of all the occupied capitals of Europe, Rome had been the biggest thorn in their side. When the Americans had been bogged down on the beaches of Anzio, in an example of true Roman humour, Huge writing had appeared on the wall of the Trastevere area in Rome. Americans, hold on, we will come and liberate you. Dolman knew that the Italians he was dealing with now, the Emilians, would probably not take things lying down. What was more, he now knew that the British and Americans were just around the corner. In any case, by that time, he knew that between 30 and 60 German soldiers had been killed. If he were to apply Hitler's ruthless 10 to 1 ratio, it could mean the deaths of 300 to 600 Italians. The next morning, the 27th of March, the parish priest of the local church of Albinea, Don Alberto Ugoletti, was delicately washing the bodies of the three killed SAS men. He silently thanked them for coming so far to give their lives for the freedom of his people. But he also thought sadly of the bodies of the five German soldiers he had buried in the previous months, also young men come from afar to die in a foreign land. He thought back to the German soldiers who had brought him the three bodies at around 10.30 that same morning. He had already heard the news of the attack and now he feared for the German reprisal. The officer in charge told him to take care of the three bodies of the fallen SAS men. In a cold sweat, the priest had asked if the Germans intended to seek revenge for the attack on the local population. The soldier looked at him seriously for a while and then broke into a cold smile. Do not worry, father. You were lucky this time. It seems that the attack was planned and participated in by Allied soldiers. They even played the bagpipes. Thank you very much for listening and Thanks to David Crowther of The History of England for being such a gracious host. I'm sure you're probably already listening 
I'm sure you probably already listened to his show if you are a history podcast enthusiast, but if you are one of those few people that have not heard it, get on over to where you listen to your podcast and download the history of England immediately. What are you waiting for? Remember, you can get in touch with us at ahistoryofitaly.com. Remember, you can get in touch with us hello at ahistoryofitaly.com and the same you and at the same URL you can click through to our social media or support the show on Patreon or PayPal and I thank you very much for those of you who decide to do so. Once again, thanks very much to you for listening and until next time, arrivederci. Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.